0: Section 53 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow, Homicide, Part 30, The Hunter-Armstrong Tragedy. Benjamin Hunter was a man who stood well in business circles in Philadelphia, and who had accumulated money in the kitchen range and boiler manufacture. He was respected in the church of which he was a member, and was said to be a kind and affectionate husband and father. An old personal friend, John M. Armstrong, a slender, good-looking man, rather deaf, above 40 years of age, who was engaged in the music publishing business, induced Hunter to invest money in his business as a special partner. When this association was dissolved by limitation, Armstrong was in Hunter's debt to an amount exceeding $7,000. The undertaking turned out unsuccessfully. And Hunter complained bitterly that Armstrong had lived in a style beyond his means, that he avoided and slighted his creditor, and evinced no disposition to meet his indebtedness. Hunter, who was noted for his avaricious spirit, brooded over the loss till he conceived what he termed a deep laid plot to insure Armstrong's life in his own behalf for a large sum, much larger. As afterward appeared, then the amount of the obligation and eventually compass his premature death, he proceeded to carry this villainous design into execution by taking out the following policies on the life of Armstrong: one for ten thousand dollars in the Manhattan life, one for ten thousand dollars in the mutual life of New York, and one for six thousand dollars in the Provident Life and Trust of Philadelphia. Armstrong was too deaf to catch the mention of these sums at the offices, and Hunter told him that the total insurance was only $7,500, just enough to cover the amount of his indebtedness, and thus disarm suspicion. Hunter's next step was to procure an assassin for his victim, and he found one in Thomas Graham a dissolute fellow, formerly his apprentice, who consented to do the deed for $500. Hunter took a journey to Virginia, with the understanding that the murder was to be accomplished while he was away. But nothing was effected during his absence, Graham becoming chicken-hearted and infirm of purpose, and he found that he himself would have to take a direct and active hand in the work of assassination. He forged on a postal card a message from Ford W. Davis of Camden, the New Jersey city, on the opposite shore of the Delaware River, to Armstrong, inviting the latter to visit him, Davis, in that town, to receive money in payment of a debt due to him. Armstrong caught at the bait, and Hunter and Graham accompanied him. Before leaving, Armstrong sent a note to his wife informing her that he would not be at home to take tea that evening as he was going to Camden with Hunter and Graham to receive some money. This was January 23, 1878, seven weeks after Hunter had taken out the policies on Armstrong's life. Hunter had bought a new felt hat and a hatchet and muffled himself up so as to be unrecognizable. Graham was provided with a hammer, on the handle of which, as well as that of the hatchet, were cut the initials F.W.D., implying a design to throw suspicion on Ford W. Davis, against whom he owed a grudge, and whom he was willing to see convicted and punished for his own crime, for which every preparation had now been thoughtfully and carefully made." When the victim reached the corner of 5th and Vine Streets, Camden, near Ford's residence, Hunter gave the signal by uttering the word, Yes, which the deaf Armstrong did not hear, but which brought Graham, who had slunk behind, up to the work, and he felled Armstrong to the earth with his hammer. As he sank beneath the force of the blow, he turned on Graham such a look of pitiful appealing and distress, that the assassin, pierced to the heart with remorse, threw away his murderous instrument, turned and fled in horror. But Hunter, a bolder and more hardened wretch, completed the butchery by smashing the victim's skull with his hatchet. The assassins met again at the ferry, where, in answer to Graham's anxious inquiry, Hunter replied, I finished him. Grimm received $10 on account from Hunter as payment for the part he had taken in the murder. When Armstrong was found on the sidewalk, he was insensible. He was taken to his home in Philadelphia. The hammer on which the initials were cut was picked up, and Ford W. Davis was arrested. James P. DeMaris, another resident of Camden likewise involved in business complications with Armstrong, was also imprisoned on the same charge, as an express driver testified that he saw two men running away on the fatal night from the scene of the murder. The appearances against them were dark and menacing. At daybreak, after the night in which Armstrong was struck down, his son Frank, prompted by the note his father had sent the evening previous, called on Hunter for an explanation, but Hunter declared that he had not been at Camden on the night before, and that if Armstrong had written that he was going there with him, he was covered with lies from head to foot. Hunter went soon after to the shop of one Peter Epp to request him to go with him to repair a boiler, and as they were on their way, "'baked him as a favor because a man had been hurt at Camden "'where he had been the night previous. "'To state that he, Hunter, had been at his place at that time, "'lest his wife should be angry with him "'and he should be brought into discredit in his church. "'Epp, who is said to have been a decent mechanic, "'was foolish enough to comply with the request. "'Then came a climax which revealed the fiendish and revolting cruelty of Hunter. After calling at Armstrong's with Epp to force his alibi on the family, he returned later in the day and quietly entered the room in which the dying man lay. The wounds had been staunched and carefully bandaged, and the sufferer was lying unconscious on the bed. Mrs. Smith, an old friend of the family acting as nurse, was the only other person in the room, the doctor having just gone. Hunter, seizing the opportunity, said blandly to Mrs. Smith that he would see to Armstrong and relieve her for a little while, urging her to go down and comfort Mrs. Armstrong. Mrs. Smith left the room. In a few minutes, she returned. She saw, to her horror, that there was a complete and terrible change in the dying man. His body was in a violent tremor. He was moaning and his wounds were bleeding afresh. In the excitement, Hunter said he would go for a doctor and left the house. It was then discovered that the bandages had been torn from the murdered man's head and that a clean napkin, which had just been placed over it, had been taken away. Fearful lest Armstrong might be so far restored to consciousness as to reveal the name of the murderers, the miscreant had torn open the wounds he had made and thus rendered his victim's death certain and speedy. A few days after Armstrong's death, Hunter accepted an invitation to go to New Jersey to give important testimony in the case, but was not permitted to return home. The suspicions against him, however, being mainly based on the fact of his holding the large insurance on Armstrong's life and his excessive eagerness to divert attention from himself, as the chain of evidence grew stronger, Davis and Damaris were released, and Hunter was bound over on the charge of murder. Thomas Graham was next suspected as an accomplice, and was shadowed by the police for many weeks, a detective obtaining rooms in the house where Graham boarded. Enough was learned to warrant Graham's arrest, and on the 19th of March, two months after the murder, he was taken over to Camden, where he made a full confession of the deed. He recited Hunter's proposition to him to murder Armstrong, for which he, Graham, was to receive $500 how the conspiracy failed on one occasion, how, on the fatal night, Hunter, wearing a new felt hat and with his face muffled, went in company with Armstrong to Camden, Graham following them with the hammer, which Hunter provided him with, and how, at the corner of Fifth and Vine Streets, Hunter gave him the signal for the attack. Graham then claimed that after he struck the first blow, His heart failed him on seeing the distressed and reproachful look of astonishment on the face of their helpless victim, and he then threw down the weapon and ran away, leaving Hunter and the victim in the darkness. Soon afterward, Hunter joined him at the ferry and informed him that he, Hunter, had finished him. Both then crossed the river and separated in Philadelphia. After this confession, a true bill was found against Hunter, and on the 10th of June, he was brought to trial. Testimony, which was clear and conclusive, showed that Hunter not only murderously assaulted his victim in the streets of Camden, and by cutting the initials on the weapon, sought to involve an innocent man, but that he also went to Armstrong's house in the character of a friend on the day after the assault, and tampered with the wounds on the head of the dying man, who was still insensible, causing them to open afresh. His counsel made great efforts to prove an alibi, but they broke down, and on the 3rd of July, Hunter was convicted of murder in the first degree. Although the jury remained out nearly three hours, it was subsequently reported by some of them that they would have convicted the accused without leaving the box, had they not dreaded the ensuing excitement. The insurance motive, the purpose to profit by insurance contingent upon the life of Armstrong, was clearly pointed out in the course of the summary of the public prosecutor, Mr. Jenkins, who said, Benjamin Hunter, the defendant, had obtained an insurance of $26,000 on the life of John M. Armstrong and this fact, we contend, furnishes the motive which led to the murder. The defendant was not a rich man at that time by any means, as it has been shown to you in this case. His property was only valued at $32,000, while his income merely amounted to about $2,200. His taxes, the interest on his mortgages and his water rents, amounted to $750 and the premiums on these policies amounted to something like $1,000 or $1,100, which, after being deducted from the amount of his income, would only leave him about $500 a year upon which to support his family. He had a large family, and this sum was apparently insufficient to support them in the style in which they had been living. He had his carriage and his horse. He had his servants, and he had his house to maintain. And $500 was too small with which to meet the expenses of his expensive household. It would have taken 3000 a year at least. He had retired from business and had been living in style. It is a hard matter for those who have been accustomed to the luxuries of this world. To retrench those expenses which are necessary for the purpose of affording them. It is an easy matter for a poor man to become still poorer, but it is hard for a rich man to give up his accustomed way of living. And this is the experience of all of us in this age in which we live. Benjamin Hunter told you that Mr. Armstrong understood thoroughly that the policies of insurance to the amount of $26,000 were to be taken out upon his life by him. He stated that they had a conversation together about this matter and that Mr. Armstrong understood it thoroughly. But from the testimony of Mr. Van Oxen, it is apparent to you that Mr. Armstrong did not thoroughly understand the negotiation of this insurance. John M. Armstrong had no idea that the defendant was intending to procure $26,000 insurance. But when he went to the New York Mutual Life Insurance Company in Philadelphia to be examined and told by Mr. Van Oxum that the policy to be taken out was only for the sum of $2,500. Mr. Van Oxen asked him, No more? And he replied, No, $2,500. Armstrong was not so big a fool as this defendant would have you believe. He understood his business, and he knew that he did not want $26,000 of insurance upon his life. When he only owed the defendant six or seven thousand dollars. What then was the object the defendant had in taking out that amount of insurance upon his life? If Mr. Armstrong had lived the length of time for which these policies were taken out, the aggregate of premiums would have amounted to more than the several policies combined. These policies of insurance were a heavy load for the defendant to carry but he tells you that his sole object in taking out these policies of insurance was for the purpose of benefiting the creditors of Mr. Armstrong. Was ever such an idea conceived that he intended to pay $1,000 a year for the space of 20 years in order to satisfy the creditors of John M. Armstrong? He was confident and he thought he knew that he could claim every cent of this money at the death of Mr. Armstrong. In fact, he even went so far as to ask Mr. Ashbrook, the agent of one of these insurance companies, to have the policy made out in such a way that he could collect it immediately after the death of Mr. Armstrong. And then, after his death, what do we see the defendant doing? Three days after John M. Armstrong died we find this defendant placing that policy in the hands of a lawyer for the purpose of having it collected. I say, therefore, that the state in this case has shown a very strong motive to lead the defendant to commit this murder. Remember, also, that Mr. Hunter was one of the best friends in the family of Mr. Armstrong. He was continually loaning Mr. Armstrong money, but he was always well secured. After his conviction, strenuous efforts were made to save the wretch's life. Judge Woodhall overruled a motion for a new trial. Hunter was ably pleaded for before the Court of Errors and Appeals. The great influence brought to bear on Governor McClellan proved unavailing, and Hunter was doomed to pay the penalty of his crime. When Hunter found that his sentence would certainly be executed, he showed... In an attempt to commit suicide, the same resolute cunning and unflinching determination he had displayed in murdering Armstrong. While chatting, choking and laughing in his cage in Camden jail with his keeper, Nissen, and smoking his cigar with an air of sang-froid, he managed, under the pretense of rubbing his feet and ankles under a piece of carpet to keep them warm, to cut the arteries of his instep with a sharp, ragged piece of tin, filling the spittoon under him with blood. And had he not been handcuffed and a doctor called in to stop the hemorrhage, he would have bled to death. He became very weak from loss of blood and refused to eat, and was kept alive by stimulants. His pulse at various times was as high as 180. As the time approached for execution, efforts were made to overcome extreme nervous prostration by pouring down copious draughts of brandy. But being utterly helpless and unable to walk, he was carried to the enclosure, oblivious to all surroundings. At 11.25 a.m., the sheriff cut the auxiliary rope, and here occurred a sickening spectacle. The rope either had too much slack or gave way so much that it lifted the culprit barely from the floor when he fell back and was caught by the assistants, Sheriff Calhoun seized the rope leading to the basement and hoisted Hunter into the air, and he was hung only by a number of persons holding to the rope during the whole time of suspension. The physician said that his neck was not broken and he died by strangulation. Thus ignominiously perished the victim of his own insatiable avarice. His greed tempted him to commit murder, and his meanness toward his accomplice led to his betrayal. His excessive confidence in his own cunning helped to complete his ruin. He persisted in trying to deceive his own counsel till it was too late for them to save him. And he confided the facts to them at first, They would doubtless have sent Graham out of the way of arrest. Hunter's attempt to rectify the blunder by bribing monks with $200 to poison Graham in prison was a piece of folly from which his counsel found it hard to dissuade him. Monks would have kept the money and betrayed him sooner than Graham did. Hunter, it is said, expressed no contrition for the murder he had committed but quite broke down with its effects on his family, his wife, and children, was presented to his mind. The love of one's own is a feeling cherished even by the most brutal natures, and its exhibition on the part of this wretch was the one bright spot in the picture on a background of revolting depravity. Looking back upon this burlesque on judicial forms of execution and upon the mental anguish and physical suffering which attended the last days of Hunter, the majesty of offended justice, it would seem, could have demanded nothing more in the way of satisfaction. If the vindication of law meant that the hangman's rope must be preceded by the helpless torture of suspense, the hopeless agony of disappointment, the desire without the capacity of self-destruction, the inexpressible woe of a wrecked and crushed spirit, and the maddening remorse and horror of the closing hours. Violated law had nothing more to ask. In the course of his fragmentary confessions, Hunter said, Armstrong thought I had but $2,500 in each of the three insurance companies and this would have covered his indebtedness to me. I had him insured for $26,000 without his knowing it. I had queer thoughts concerning him then, but I had no idea of killing him. It was that cursed insurance did it all. That put the thought in my head and kept it there, and that impelled me. I know not how to do what I did. It was not that insurance is a curse, except in its falsification or illegitimate misuse. The bread which sustains the body, and the bread of eternal life which sustains the soul, may be perverted to base uses. The curse was in a nature which, when unmasked, exhibits a degree of inherent debasement that seems to have been unsuspected by his neighbors. To outward appearance he was a respectable, well-behaved, law-abiding, church-going citizen. He was revealed as a demon of avarice, a monster of iniquity, a felon at heart waiting only for the opportunity to strike his victim. One would think that in deliberately scheming to kill his friend in order to make money by his death, he had reached the depths of fiendishness. But he went further. There was a lower deep, He plotted the ruin and probably the conviction on circumstantial evidence of an innocent man, Ford W. Davis. He forged a chain of evidence which so seriously implicated Davis as almost to afford presumptive proof against him. He employed Graham as a bribed assassin, and had it not been for the hireling's confession, Hunter could have seen either of them hung without wincing and without remorse. Society could not at first comprehend how a man with so fair an exterior could reveal such immeasurable outlawry and ruffianism. But society now knows that the most abandoned criminal could not have shown more coolness and cunning in the execution of his plans. As to the accomplice, Thomas Graham, public sentiment was against conviction of murder in the first degree because as Hunter was convicted mainly on Graham's testimony, it was felt that no one would be likely thereafter to turn state's evidence in New Jersey and thereby fatally incriminate himself. The question was not whether Graham deserved hanging, but whether in view of the use the state made of him and of universal custom it would be wise or just to hang him. Under advice, Graham pleaded guilty of murder in the second degree, and was sentenced November 24, 1879, by the Supreme Court at Trenton to 20 years at hard labor in the state prison. Chief Justice Beasley, in pronouncing sentence, said it was only from motives of public policy, in view of the valuable evidence furnished by Graham that the plea was accepted. He served his time, which was shortened by good conduct, and was released from prison August 15, 1893. In May 1882, Armstrong's heirs brought suit to recover the amount of insurance placed on his life at the instigation of Hunter. A test was made in the United States Circuit Court, Eastern District of New York, against the Mutual Life Insurance Company. Before the policies were issued, Armstrong had executed an assignment to Hunter of all policies that might be issued. The former, therefore, according to well-settled legal principles, had no interest in an insurance which was the sole property of his murderer. When Hunter was convicted of his crime and paid the penalty on the gallows, it was generally supposed that the anticipated profits of his fraud perished with him, and that any attempt to collect the money in behalf of his estate would meet with summary failure. But this attempt to recover the money in behalf of the murdered man's family raised strange questions in ethics as well as in law. Public policy demands that fraud should defeat a contract, whether it be the destruction of insured property or insured life. Is that policy changed in respect to the sufferer from the fraud? Public policy is certainly against recognition of a contract consummated for purposes of fraud. Any other position would allow the heirs to connive with swindlers and defeat the whole object of the law. If the insurers are liable, it must be on the assumed grounds of a criminal negligence which furnishes the temptation for the murder but such an action should be of the nature of damages and not under a policy. There is a rude sense of justice that would decree to the innocent sufferers the proceeds of the policies, which tempted the crime, but broader principles of law and ethics would seem to forbid that money like this should be collected at all in the interest of either party. The company resisted payment on the ground of attempted fraud by Hunter. The counsel for the plaintiff contended that the promise of the policy was twofold, to pay a sum of money to Armstrong in 20 years, or to his legal representative if he should die within that time. The assignment to Hunter carried only the right to the money if Armstrong lived 20 years. It did not convey the death claim. The counsel also claimed that the evil designs of Hunter could not affect the validity of the policy. The court adopted this view and held that any evidence of Hunter's fraud must be excluded. There was no evidence in the case of an attempt to defraud on the part of Armstrong, nor was any offered to be shown by the defendant. In the opinion given by Judge Wheeler It was held, among other things, that peril evidence was not admissible to vary the language of the contract by showing that the real contract was with Hunter, that the administrator of Armstrong was his legal representative and was entitled to recover the amount in the absence of sufficient ground to defeat a recovery, that the right to receive the money in case of previous death, the policy was an endowment." Did not pass by the assignment, but was left in Armstrong, and accrued to his representative, who, as Armstrong was an innocent party, was entitled to recover, notwithstanding the fraud of Hunter. The judgment was reversed on appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, plaintiff in error, versus John M. Armstrong, deceased. April 5, 1886. Justice Field closed a lengthy review of the points in the case in the following language. Wherever the intent or guilty knowledge of a party is a material ingredient in the issue of a cause, collateral facts tending to establish such intent or knowledge are proper evidence. In many cases of fraud, it would be otherwise impossible satisfactorily to establish the true nature and character of the act. The evidence offered that Hunter obtained insurances in other companies on the life of Armstrong at or near the same time was, under these authorities, clearly admissible. It tended to establish the theory of the defendant that the insurance in this case was obtained by Hunter Upon the premeditated purpose to cheat and defraud the company, especially would it have had that effect if followed by proof of the manner of the death of Armstrong. But independently of any proof of the motives of Hunter in obtaining the policy, and even assuming that they were just and proper, he forfeited all rights under it when, to secure its immediate payment, he murdered the assured. It would be a reproach to the jurisprudence of the country if one could recover insurance money payable on the death of a party whose life he had feloniously taken. As well might he recover insurance money upon a building that he had willfully fired. This view renders it unnecessary to consider the effect upon the policy of the statements made in the application of the assured as to the amount of other insurance on his life. In thus determining the invalidity of the claim of the widow, Mrs. Julia Armstrong, the highest court in the land, says in substance that a life insurance effected at the instance and for the benefit of a man with murder in his heart, the premium being paid by that man, the policy delivered to that man, and the murder a short time afterwards committed by that man, shall not be made available for the benefit of a person who was a nominal, but not an actual party to the transaction, available for anybody, in fact. End of Section 53